You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. The idea that has always fascinated me about dreams is everything within that dream is created by your own mind as you experience it. You remember the chance to build cathedrals, entire cities, things that never existed, things that couldn't exist in the real world. Have you ever had a dream, Neil, that you were so sure was real? Once you were able to wake from that dream, how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? Hello and welcome back to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast. This is episode 23, and today I have a really awesome guest on the podcast, Dr. Kristen Lamarca, who is a clinical psychologist out of San Diego. She incorporates lucid dreaming into her practice, helping patients. She is also an associate at the Lucidity Institute and does uh, work and research with Stephen LeBerge, as well as uh, helps out with the retreats. And she has a fascinating background and knows a lot about lucid dreaming, and we cover the spectrum in this interview, and I think you would really enjoy it. Uh, but before I get to that, just a few updates. And I was uh, talking uh, last episode, uh, introducing uh, my first sponsor, and uh, I was talking about trying to help with the podcast and, and really put some more effort into it. I actually have a series of interviews, one of them already recorded and a few more scheduled coming up soon. So actually I'm going to have a lot more episodes coming up and most of them are interviews and I think it's going to be really interesting. There are some really good ones and this is the first of a few in these series. So uh, stay tuned for that. As for people who uh, emailed me uh, in response to the last episode, and I should mention I, I'm realizing because the numbers of the episode listens, uh, the number of downloads are growing, it obviously means that there's a lot of new listeners, and I can't assume that <laughs> everybody heard all the episodes. So if you're new, welcome, and um, there is a thread, I suppose, going between all the episodes where I keep update on previous stuff and so on, so you can always uh, skip those parts or, or go back if you're really interested. Uh, I don't have all that many episodes uh, in the back catalog, so I, I, and I think most of them are really kind of evergreen other than mentioning specific timelines of you know Kickstarter projects and all sort of stuff like that but for the most part I think they most of them at least hold nicely um, but if you are new uh, I, I don't want to make an assumption about how long you've been listening so so welcome and hopefully this is interesting and standalone episodes as well those who have asked uh, how else you can help the podcast I was, I've been thinking about that and I've been uh, uh, trying to come up with ways other than obviously spending money on uh, a sponsor, which is fine as well. Uh, a great way is just to share the podcast. Um, you can post about it in social media if you have the time and energy and if you really like the podcast. By all means, go on iTunes, uh, subscribe for it there, and leave a nice review, a five-star review if you really like the podcast. If you don't like the podcast, either stop listening or, or just email me with your feedback and your comments. Tell me what sucks about it and I'll see what I can do. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully you like it. Uh, if you're listening on Overcast, the podcast app on iOS, you can next to each episode you can click the little i button and you can click the star to recommend, and that shows shows up on up other people's uh, sort of recommend recommendations section. 
uh, on uh, on the app, which is which is great. That's how I discover a lot of other podcasts. So that would be really cool, and that's very helpful. And again, just sharing if you think somebody might like this, uh, let them know. Uh, and I appreciate all the all the support and all the help and everybody who emailed in. This is uh, very kind of you. So thank you, <laughs> thank you all for all your kind words. By the way, if you did listen to the last episode, I should mention that my sleep has been improving finally and I'm sleeping better and deeper I still wake up throughout the night which is partially natural but uh, it's far less intrusive to my sleep and I can sleep better which is just fantastic news across the board all right so let's get to the interview uh, before I do that uh, let me say that today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com Get a free audiobook, download, and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash luciddreaming. You have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today I wanted to recommend a book that I actually read uh, physically. I don't think it was available at the time. It's an audiobook, but you can uh, find Lucid Dreaming Gateway to the Inner Self by Robert Wagner, which is, I think, his... His most famous book. He's, it's not his only book, but it's definitely his uh, his most uh, famous and most successful one. It is a fascinating read, and it will be a fascinating listen. So I recommend checking out that. And you can again get your free audiobook at audibletrial.com/lucidreaming. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring the podcast. And now let's get on with the interview. Today I have with me. Kristen Lamarca, PhD. Uh, she is a clinical psychologist and uh, uh, associate at the Lucidity Institute and works with Stephen LeBurge and a lucid dreaming practitioner. And uh, thank you for coming to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So there's a bunch of stuff I wanted to, to talk about. We, we chatted a little before, of course, and there's a lot of ground to cover, but I wanted to, of course, start with the with the usual of sort of just give me your background. Um, what 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 do you do? So just we know we we know the the audience will know who they're listening to, and uh, um, and then perhaps you can take it from there on on how you got involved with lucid dreaming. Sure, no problem. So again, you know, I'm a psychologist. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a researcher. My training background emphasized a lot of health psychology, so behavioral or mind-body medicine, uh, also applied psychophysiology, so like biofeedback and neurofeedback. And currently, I have a general psychotherapy practice, and I'm also doing some clinical work and program development for a couple of different sleep disorder centers in the Southern California area, and treatment programming, namely being for insomnia or other issues related to sleep. And I have been an associate of the Lucidity Institute for several years now. Uh, my involvement with them has included various roles, but mainly I do a lot of assistance with the retreats that Dr. LaBerge runs and helping participants get to know and benefit from the Nova Dreamer. And also I've been contributing to some of his research on herbal supplements that are thought to be helpful in boosting your chances of having lucid dreams. Very cool, very cool. Okay, so um, so there's a there's a few things there that 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 I find very interesting, uh, and then I want to dig into. So let's just uh, go for it. Um, you did you 
uh, first study psychology, or or is lucid dreaming something that's sort of in your life, whether as as not professionally, of course, but at least as uh, as your own practice, something that came before you studied psychology? I'm actually not a natural born lucid dreamer. So I had one when I was a kid. It's actually interesting. I had a I was dreaming I was in a tree and I had an out of body perspective and I realized that couldn't be right. And so I, I became lucid and I was young. I don't remember the exact age, maybe five or six. But after that, never had lucid dreams. My interest in dreaming was, you know, kind of vague. I thought they were cool. And then uh, I started to study psychology in college. And that was actually when I was introduced to lucid dreaming. These were in the courses of Dr. Sheikh at Marquette University. Very cool classes on the psychology of death and dying, as well as mental imagery and imagination. So when I learned about it then, I was just so fascinated with the potential of lucid dreaming. So I took it upon myself to learn as much as I possibly could about it and started having my own lucid dreams. And as soon as I got to graduate school, I was introduced to Stephen LeBerge and I attended his retreat and got to know his program for lucid dreaming. And uh, it's just kind of taken off from there. I think in my early years, my lucid dreaming practice really developed because I was using the herbal supplement, which, which I think we'll talk about today, galantamine, to really help me get lucid and have longer lucid dreams, stay in the, the dream much longer and be able to navigate it better. So since then, I don't use galantamine nearly as much, but I still have them. And when I first started, I was using them, using them a lot more for like pleasure seeking and exploration. I was really interested in music in dreams at that time. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, Jay, music dreams or lucid dreams, but it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And then um, I think inevitably what happens to a lot of lucid dreamers is that um, they're using the state and then they start to confront they're forced to confront their own demons. They start to encounter nightmare images or uh, dreams that might be disturbing or unsettling in some way. So at that point in my practice, I started learning a lot about how to transform nightmares and confront them. Uh, the work by Paul and Stephen LeBerge on using lucid dreams for self-integration, um, for individuation, that's a Jungian term, uh, was really useful to me. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but I'm sure we can talk a little about bit, that yeah. today as well, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, you know, from there I learned a lot of different techniques to develop myself as a person. These days I still use it for creativity, for problem solving. I uh, have an interest in self-healing in lucid dreams. And more recently, I've been uh, using lucid dreaming as a med meditation platform. Beautiful. Um, yes, I, I have a lot of interest in the overlap between mindfulness meditation and lucid dreaming, as well as the Tibetan Buddhist approaches to it. And those experiences are very powerful. And what intrigues me so much about them is that during my waking meditation practices, I cannot have the same experiences as I can in lucid dreams. When you're in the dream state, the boundaries of consciousness are just so much more permeable. And so it's it's been something that's been really fulfilling for me spiritually. Um, we could always talk about more uh, uh, related to that if you'd like. Or if Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, there, there's so much that you've touched on. And and uh, let's get to the supplements a, a little bit later, but let's touch on what you said here because, for one, 
I find the connection to psychology in lucid dreams uh, not only fascinating but very important. I feel that it's one of those, like I'm okay with introducing people to the concept of lucid dreaming via the entertainment aspect of it, like the virtual reality in your mind. I think that's okay. I think it's a big part of it. And I think, I don't think that that's a bad thing. But again, almost everyone I speak to, and, and of course from my own experience as well, the longer you, you practice lucid dreaming, the more lucid dreams you have, you almost, not always, but almost naturally start looking into some of the other aspects of lucid dreaming other than the just fun running around in that environment. Uh, all the way to, actually, it's, it's almost, again, I don't know if it's really a, a linear spectrum, but it's almost like entertainment, uh, psychological transformation, growth, healing, into spirituality and meditation and sort of even, even if you want to call it that, higher states of consciousness and meditative states and so on. Uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated that that's been your, your journey as well, it, it seems. Um, and what I wanted to ask you, so let's see, uh, the last thing you were saying about spirituality and meditation, and I'm, I've been digging into dream yoga. Of course, I talked to one of the episodes I have is with, with Stephen Liber uh, with, uh, sorry, with Andrew Holacek. Um, and what I, what I love is that uh, scientific research has been digging into meditation in general. And on the other end, sort of scientific studies have finally accelerated in regards to lucid dreaming as a state of consciousness and what's happening in the brain. And now they're the, Again, it's generalizing saying the scientific community or something like that, but enough, uh, enough people, enough scientists and enough people in science that have been sort of accepting the interesting uh, facts about meditation itself and, and subjective states of consciousness are now willing to hear some of the other things that Tibetan Buddhist monks are saying about um, the uh, practices of meditation in a lucid dream as well as even the deep sleep awareness mm -hmm. and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So I don't know if you have more insights about that, but I find that fascinating. I'm sure you could do a whole podcast on <laughs> yeah. this day, actually. And it's great to hear that you've had a lot of similar experiences too. I wouldn't say that my development has been completely linear because I still use it for fun, for pleasure, right. for exploration, right. and uh, occasionally the, the nightmare. So uh, I wouldn't say it's linear, more simultaneous. But as far as uh, the meditation aspects of lucid dreaming, just so interesting to sit down once you get lucid and start to meditate and how different that can be from, at least for me, my waking experiences. And I think that has a lot of uh, practical implications for people because not a lot of people can devote a lot of time and discipline development practice but when you have more immediate reward or uh, you experience certain things from the lucid dream state I think that can be very motivating for people at least it has for me and as far as just mindfulness of sleep and dream states in general the deeper stages of sleep I'm so interested in that and I don't know if you've had experiences with that as well unfortunately and not I've yet heard, uh, Robert Wag not yet. They're so interesting. Um, Robert Wagner, I think, talked a little bit about his experiences with, I think he called it the clear light state of awareness, or at least that may be a Tibetan Buddhist term. I've heard Stephen LeBarish talk about uh, some of those experiences he's had as well. And for me, I've only actually had success with it one time. And 
I've also been told that I tend to regularly access sort of the transition of that state when you're sort of dropping into that deeper state of awareness. Uh, but I, I still do have trouble making that transition with consciousness. I tend to either get startled or I, I wake up really fast. Um, I don't know if you've ever had other experiences of sort of egolessness or, or losing a sense of your ego that can be kind of startling. Yeah, <laughs> way, yeah, yeah. But uh, there's definitely there's definitely ways to work around that and actually be able to maintain consciousness in that state. So that's definitely an area that I'm interested in. And, you know, it brings up a lot of questions, you know, if more people were able to access those sort of non-dual states of awareness, you know, how could that benefit ourselves, our, our worlds, our societies? I think there's a lot of potential and it's something really significant. So it's good to see that people are getting more aware of it and actually talking about it. Like yeah. we are here today. Yeah, mm -hmm. one of the most interesting aspects that, beca that became, at least for me, pretty obvious early on was the fact that the sense of self is sort of malleable. And we don't really think about it. It's one of those things that unless we've read a lot about in philosophy or especially uh, Eastern philosophy uh, about the sense of self and really what it, what's it comprised of, we take it for granted. It's this thing that's in the background. Except that, that in, uh, in dreams, in a lucid dream, you now identify with this seemingly like you kind of character. But I've had um, sort of third-person perspective in, in regular dreams in, in, and in lucid dreams so often that um, you kind of get used to that as well if you don't stop and think about it. I mean, the first time it happened to you, you were like, wait a minute, this doesn't quite make sense. Uh, but uh, for me, it's only when I became lucid did I say, wait a minute, I'm identifying with this character running around in the dream, but I see, it, I see this character from the outside. Where am I sitting and looking at this character <laughs> from? Who am, who am I? Am I this person running around? Or am I this person looking at the dream from this weird you know, point in the sky or something? And then it's just been, it just became fascinating to start playing around with that sense of self. And of course, uh, with enough practice, dissolving that sense of self completely just introduces a lot of, one, a remarkable experience, but a lot of interesting questions about the nature of self and the nature of consciousness, which we, not everybody is interested in, in digging into, and that's okay, but I, I, I just, uh, I find it absolutely uh, mesmerizing and, and, and intriguing. So that's very cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a, a quick comment about music. Um, I just reminded, because you were talking about that, I don't have a I don't have it as a very common occurrence, but my first ever lucid dream um, at, at around I think the age of six, and I may have told the story, had background music. So I was flying around in 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 school, and there was a song I knew in the background. And for some reason, I think more related to the flying, I I realized that I was dreaming. In fact, I've I've said this before too, but it seems like flying always triggers lucidity for me. I wonder if there is a connection. But the first dream I ever had that had background music too, which is very rare for me. So I thought there's also some kind of a connection there. Yeah, sure. And that's great that flying is such a cue for you to become lucid. And that makes sense. I mean, it's something totally impossible and trained yourself to actually recognize it when it's happening. So that's wonderful. Yeah, I was wondering if it has something to do with, I don't know, um, either a symbolic thing like a, some Jungian archetype or something mm -hmm. or a connection to freedom or to awareness because there's plenty of impossible things that happen in a dream that don't trigger my lucidity except that um, 
If I'm flying, I'm almost 99% certain that I will become lucid. Uh, or if I become lucid, the, the first instinct I have is to start flying. So there's, there's something <laughs> there. There's something there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how you incorporate lucid dreaming in your practice. I'm guessing not perhaps, and you tell me, not the vast majority of, of, uh, of your patients is something that you introduce lucid dreaming to, or is it only for the people who come to you seeking sort of maybe uh, lucid dream therapy or dealing with nightmares, or only the ones who have issues like that that can at best uh, be addressed in a dream are, are ones that you incorporate with? It's it's a mix of both. Some people actually seek those sort of interventions. Perhaps they're already lucid dreamers and they want to continue to use that as a therapeutic tool. And at other times, depending on if it's appropriate, I might introduce it into my therapeutic work with a client that I'm already seeing and perhaps has never had a lucid dream or even been interested in, in it in the past. Oh, cool. Okay. And uh, I mean, how, how do people usually respond to that? Is there Do you ever get sort of pushback or people thinking something weird about it. The, the reason I'm asking is, is because, uh, you know, recently with talking with a lot more people in person, I'm discovering more and more the different uh, connotations that people have to the word lucid dreaming, if they even know what it is, uh, or even the misunderstandings or misconceptions about it uh, that, I, that I get from their questions. By their questions, that I, I realize that they either misunderstand what lucid dreaming is, even though they thought they knew what it is and so on. Sure. I mean, those misconceptions are common. Um, usually when I'm bringing it up in therapy, I'm setting people's expectations right in order to be able to use it effectively. So I don't typically get any drawback in the work that I have done. I use my own clinical judgment to select cases where it would actually be appropriate for. And, you know, there may be other people that don't seemingly uh, – appear to be someone who would benefit from something like lucid dreaming but you know that's that's not necessarily for me to say because I I don't typically work with people that aren't motivated to try and learn right it. right that makes sense okay that's cool um, so how, you said you got involved with the lucidity Institute and Stephen LeBurge at uh, the university where you where you went to study or was that no no actually um, when I was in graduate school, I oh, did graduate meet school. Stephen LeBerge okay. uh, by going to his retreat. And then I've continued to come back to volunteer and uh, have taken on more roles and responsibilities there. So currently, I am a co-facilitator, a presenter, a researcher at his retreats. And like I said, I do a lot of work with the Nova Dreamer, and we're also studying the effects of glanamine on lucid dreaming. Let's talk about those two because, uh, mm -hmm. so uh, I, I'm sure, I don't know how much you can say about the Nova Dreamer, but I, I know from, from you and a few other people I talk to, because uh, people, when I talk about gadgets, people keep asking me, is there really such a thing as the Nova Dreamer 2? Is it just, <laughs> it's been promised for so long. So there is such a thing. It does exist. <laughs> it <laughs> exists. Yeah. It's just not on the market. No, no. Um, the Nova Dreamer has had a few different developments over the years. I never got to know the first one that came out, but Stephen does use the Nova Dreamer at his retreats. And the Nova Dreamer 2 was, well, I'm sure most of your listeners already know what this is. It's a device that detects REM sleep and it, it 
to the cues so you can train yourself to recognize it. It's like a pre-programmed dream sign, basically. Yeah. So uh, the second of a dreamer was um, uh, something he was using at his retreats. It was a little bit more of a sophisticated device, probably more oriented toward researchers than the consumer. I see. And now they have another device that they're working on actually releasing to the public. And it's a lot more consumer friendly. It is much more sleek and comfortable to wear all night, which is so important because if you can't wear these devices at night, then what good are they really? And uh, what I, even I, what I noticed personally from the Nova Dreamer 2 to the new one is that I can actually wear it all night, whereas the old one was a little clunkier. I'd end up kind of taking it off unconsciously in the middle of the night. And so that's, that's a huge advantage to it. And it's also cool because it interfaces with the iPhone now. And I think there's a lot of um, ideas that they're talking about as far as what they'll interface with that sort of technology to help people have more lucid dreams. That's very cool. Yeah, I, uh, I, it, it was interesting to discover quickly how people who are not even used to wearing a sleep mask or anything on their face or their head to go to sleep, uh, it takes time to get used to. Even the slick ones, usually. I mean, the, but but it's so crucial for something like that to be comfortable and you know small and light and not intrusive and just mm-hmm. you know easy to wear. And uh, um, so that's that's uh, that's good news. So there is a plan for it to come out at some point mm-hmm. to consumers. But yeah, what what I've what I've heard is that uh, Stephen is using it using it mostly for research purposes at the moment, and again, I think that as soon as there are more devices uh, that can can help people lucid dream out in the world, um, the what I call like uh, citizen research, like citizen science, like when when more people have that they can report back or participate in studies, uh, that would be amazing. Yeah, very true. And wouldn't that be nice to start to correlate psychophysiological data more with these reports of lucid dreaming? That there's a lot that can be learned from that. Right. And I think the uh, the intersection of sleep trackers with lucid dreaming devices um, might be interesting. So when when sleep trackers and, and lucid mm-hmm. dreaming experiences will gather data together, again, more interesting uh, more interesting things to look at. And um, uh, okay, so. About galantamine, so this is one of those things where uh, I think it's I think galantamine might be the only supplement I've uh, I've I've from all the ones that I looked at or tried that I know that actually works for a good amount of people, despite mm-hmm. not working for me for some reason. And I've tried it several mm-hmm. times. I wanted to give it another try, but it it disrupt my sleep just enough for it to not quite be be well. But but again, and I've talked about this on the podcast. Uh, my sleep is not great to begin with, which is, uh, mm-hmm. has been a challenge. And so maybe I need to solve one problem before I, I, tried, I try to give it another go. But I know that that has sort of been the go-to use for um, trying to uh, achieve lucidity, especially for, for research purposes. I, I wanted to mention, and this goes back to the sleep mask or, or, or the gadgets, um, that Ursula Voss in their, in their 2009 research, when they were trying to get a few EEG recordings of people in lucid dreams were trying to induce lucidity. Um, they just couldn't, they, it took them six months to get three people to yeah. sleep in a lab mm-hmm. with equipment on their head um, and actually have a lucid dream. So that's, that's even always been one of the challenges for science itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your experience with galantamine and, and uh, personally or in, in research setting? 
Uh, personally, like I said before, I was using it a lot more in the earlier years when I started learning lucid dreaming and definitely had an impact on how well I think I was able to use it and uh, or to do it. And also, uh, I got a lot more experience with the wild technique with galanamine. It, for some reason, makes it much easier to transition consciously into that state. And so that was how I used it often. And now, occasionally, I, I still do once in a while. Um, but uh, as far as the research we've been doing at the retreats, uh, it's been very interesting. And maybe I could just say a little something about what galantamine is for your listeners. Yeah, and so this is a herbal supplement. It's uh, available over the counter. And it's uh, typically prescribed for treating like early cognitive, but uh, we've been using it in lucid dreaming because uh, Stephen's reasoning was that since lucid dreaming tends to take place more often in intense phasic activated REM sleep, then we should use an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor to uh, intensify REM sleep more and see if that works. And what we've been doing is we uh, designed a placebo-controlled double-blind crossover study. And so uh, all participants would get three different doses of glanamine on three different nights. And one of those nights was a placebo. And then the other two nights was a low dose and a high dose. And when I say high dose, I don't actually mean a very high dose. It's actually about a third of the dose that people are instructed to take it. So it's not very much. And uh, just something else to say about it is that it can have side effects and there are contraindications as far as medical conditions and medications. So that's always something to look into before you decide to use this. But um, so what we've been doing is uh, we were giving a, a set of capsules to participants over three nights and we, saw, we looked at uh, whether or not they had reported lucid dreams the next morning. And there was a very clear increase in the rate of reported dreams in the mornings. Uh, it looks dose-related. We're still, we're done collecting data, but we're still analyzing it at this point. So that's probably the most of what I could talk about as far as results at this point. But it's been very encouraging and uh, interesting as well. And it definitely looks like it's something that can be helpful when it is given within a certain protocol of lucid dream-inducing techniques uh, related to mental set, uh, interrupting your sleep at the optimal time, taking it at an optimal time, etc. I think it's uh, all those uh, components seem to be crucial. And again, uh, a people saying like a multimodal approach where you're combining something that helps the setting, in particular the, the state of how your REM sleep is with a particular technique that seems to work well with that, uh, you get better results. And what's, what does seem to be promising that it's one of those things that actually work, again, perhaps to say it's individual and it works for some people, maybe some not as well or not so much. But, uh, but despite being individual, it does seem to work for a good amount of people where this is, okay, this is interesting and this is something to look into further. Mm -hmm. um, I would, and I wonder if you look at something like galantamine as a possible sort of um, training wheels or, or is something that, that uh, is, is okay to use continually over time because I think it's important to say that this is not something that you would recommend to use every night. Mm -hmm. No, definitely not. And, and why uh, not? If you can elaborate on that. Cause... 
Sure. And well, first of all, if you're taking it every single night, are you really going to be able to devote that specific volitional intention to have lucid dreams every night? Probably not. And so you want to use it when you're actually feeling good about having a lucid dream and ready to focus on actually having one. That's when it's going to work the best. As far as it being training wheels, that's more of my personal experience. And uh, it nece- not nece- it won't necessarily be the same for everyone else. Uh, in my experience, yes, it is something that can help you have them. And if you're having them, then you can learn more about them and how to uh, better have them in, in the future. So, I'm curious, what's, what's your take or even just, I mean, theory? I know there's not enough science on these, these things yet. But about, because it, it seems very still related, I mean, lucidity in general to sort of metacognition, uh, getting in the habit of being aware of awareness or awareing, uh, aware of yourself, uh, which is something that seems to be sort of dimmed down or muted a little bit in, in, in regular dreams, the, uh, the, the meta-awareness. Um, and it seems that, again, with, with practices like meditation and just lucid dreaming in general, we're practicing that, that area of the brain, perhaps, or, or that quote-unquote muscle, and, um, and, and just getting... Um, I don't know, with repetitive use or repetitive practice, uh, just a more natural ability to do it on a regular basis. And, and again, people who are so versed and so practiced in it, at least some of them, uh, just it happens more naturally at this point with a lot less effort. Uh, and the reason I'm asking about it, because you were talking about also like biofeedback or neurofeedback. I don't know how much, what, what type of, uh, of those things uh, are you related with, but do you think that something like neurofeedback could be used to train the brain to exhibit either the same states or practice for lucid dreaming or something like that? It's a theory I have, but I'm just not quite sure because there's no, nobody has done the experiment yet. Sure. I think you asked me a number of different questions yes. in all of that. So uh, as far as neurofeedback, I think there was a study done probably a couple decade, decades ago at, at this point, and I don't think that they found anything. But that is something that's interesting. You know, are there certain uh, electrophysiological states that would be more conducive to having lucid dreams? And can we incorporate that into uh, a program of actually being able to have them? So that's, that's a very good question, and I hope that the science will get to that point. Um, and you were also asking me about how lucid dreaming might be related to metacognition and uh, self-awareness. Was that what you Yeah, were yeah because in a sense, the, the reason I'm, I'm wondering if galantamine uh, can work for some as training wheels is just because even though you're using that to sort of try to trigger lucidity or, or to increase the chances of triggering lucidity, but people might not want to or can over time uh, continue to just use it again because it's um, at least my experience was that after after two nights of trying it I just I knew that I needed a night of sleep not just not interrupted in terms of like waking myself up to try an induction technique but not even to to take another dose of it to just it just felt too much for some reason I can't really put it into words however um, using it like training wheels in the sense that if you get the more lucid dreams you get, the more perhaps your brain gets used to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more likely it is then to... Uh, you learn more from it, sure. Right, mm-hmm. and, to, and to sort of if, you're, if, if you are developing neural networks that, that are more inclined to have lucidity, perhaps. I don't know. Again, I'm, 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 
I'm talking about terms that I'm not not completely sure about, but that's I'm, okay. I'm trying to I form like a your theory. thinking, and yeah. you're trying to pull it all together for yourself, and that's that's what makes you really good at your job here, Jay. So, Thanks. <laughs> um, but you know, glanamine it ha- helps with a number of things cognitively that help people have lucid dreams. It helps you remember them uh, better, and that's so important in being able to have lucid dreams, to have good uh, working memory, perspective memory. That's so important. Uh, and also, it, it can give that um, with with that it can give that element of clarity, so that you can actually see things as they are and be able to achieve goals in, in lucid dreams. And there's most likely some physiological components that would make glanamine uh, be- best able to augment the lucid dreaming state. I don't think I can speak speak fluently on that, and I don't think we have the research behind it yet. But except that uh, it enhances intense physic REM and that's important for for lucid dreaming and sustaining uh, it. Yeah, I was wondering uh, often if it does affect some mechanism other than the effects uh, on REM and acetylcholine and so on uh, that that does particularly help or or simply induces lucidity somehow Um, and I've heard some people who say they, they just take it, they get up, they take it, they go back to sleep and they become lucid, uh, but I heard much more about people who take it and then do an induction technique and become lucid. And and so, I again, I don't really have a good sample of people, and I don't know how... I mean, it's enough the fact that you take it that there is some auto-suggestion here. There is some intention of becoming lucid, and sometimes that's, that's enough for people. There's a ritual behind it, and that can have of power in trying to practice any sort of skill or learn learn certain things so that's true so suppose you can't even really separate taking galantamine from the intention at the very least to try to have a lucid dream in our study we did because we gave a placebo as Ah, well yes so there was still that ritualistic placebo component where people were doing everything the same except getting the dose of galantamine and we still see that the galantamine enhances those chances of Ah, having them fantastic fantastic yeah, no, I, but but I'm thinking, I guess, in uh, in um, in the aspect of uh, does galant can does galantamine um, promote lucidity without uh, um, using an induction technique? But you can't separate actually taking galantamine from the at the very least intention to have a lucid dream. Right. If you just take galantamine and expect to have a lucid dream, most That's likely not... you're going to fail. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, because I've heard some people report that that's all they did and they managed, but I account that for just at least, at the very least, having a strong intention of having a lucid dream that can trigger that. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, people say a lot of things. A lot of things. I have trouble I describing things they do. It's, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest challenges of, um, of being on all sorts of like online forums and getting emails from people and, and reading stories and reading blog posts. Uh, there's a lot of stories. The ones that kill me the most are the ones about uh, change of perception of time to extremes. Have you ever read those stories of people thinking that they're dreaming weeks, months, oh, or years sure. at a time? Sure. Yeah, it's, that's lovely. And often I think the explanation for that is people can dream in montages, much like in right. movies. So you dreamt right. you lived this year or you, over these few nights or few weeks but it's just those passing of scenes yeah. and 
most likely it's still taking place in, in real time. Right, and, and actually uh, Stephen was one of the first who have done those experiments about trying to sort of gauge and me measure time. There's another recent one that actually validates that and finds maybe slight exceptions with particular types of behavior in, uh, what was it, like squats, people are doing squats in lucid dreams and that sure. feels like it takes a little longer or something. But Sure, yeah, I vaguely recall that study. I don't think it was clear what was actually happening in, in the dreams and, you know, if they were taking steps, were they super long steps? Or It wasn't right. exactly clear what they were reporting and researching. And until we can record the video from a dream, you're, <laughs> you're just, you have to trust what they say and that subjective memory is so tricky, let alone in, in, uh, from, from dreams from memory. Mm -hmm. uh, we barely mm -hmm. remember real life accurately. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's actually a good experiment to do. You know, how much of the last 10 minutes can you accurately report that, or can you accurately remember and report? Probably very little of it, yeah. just a sliver of it. Yeah, and they've done a lot of the, those uh, uh, studies for criminology, especially to, to try to see how good is uh, eyewitness accounts. And they're terrible. They're just terrible, yeah. even of very <laughs> recent events. Mm -hmm. It's just so bizarre. I think I realized that when I looked back at memories and realized that I see those memories in third-person perspective. And I'm like, I didn't have third-person perspective of that. How is that possible? But I, I read about it in, uh, in Evan Thompson's book, Waking, Dreaming, Being. Um, it's just a phenomenon. Like we, we reframe how, how we remember things. It's a reconstruction of that image, um, so, and which might account for experiences of out-of-body experience, but we... We won't even get into that. Um, so I want to ask you, I, I, want to, I wanted to, at least be, before we wrap up, if you have general thoughts or anything you wanted to share, but mainly um, tips about, for people listening that want to have more success in lucid dreaming uh, in terms of what they can do. I mean, there's the usual recommendations, but the second thing, tips for becoming lucid, it's almost the only thing that people talk about. What what are your uh, recommendations for doing once you become lucid that are some of the most beneficial psychologically, maybe even physically, uh, that you would recommend for people to do or try or even just think about or notice? Okay. Um, well, sure. And, you know, as far as the basics of what's already out there, I could at least comment a little bit on that because I think some of those things could be done a little bit better. And then maybe I can talk about uh, some more advanced guidance I might have for you. Awesome. So, you know, as far as inducing lucid dreams, of course, you know that recall is so important, remembering your dreams and also getting to know what dreams are like and identifying what are dream signs that I can myself to recognize where I can condition myself to actually become lucid and do something. And I think this is much more important than the typical induction techniques people talk about, like reality testing. And a lot of lucid dreaming practitioners, once they become more adept, they stop relying on reality tests. They don't need them anymore because they can just become conscious or uh, see what's actually happening while they're they're dreaming, so they don't need them anymore. And so I try not to emphasize relying on those too much, but if you really are going to, rather than doing the 
gosh, there is such a gamut of reality tests out there, you know, doing something along the lines of the rereading test, which as far as Stephen's research has seen has been the most reliable way of uh, recognizing when the, the text changes and recognizing when you're dreaming. So I usually recommend that one. And um, as far as other techniques like the devices, the galanamine, et cetera, you, you know, you can't rely on those techniques to help you have a lucid dream. You have to be able to develop the proper mental set in order to have these dreams. So I try to discourage people from relying on those things too much. And I think that's often something that happens. And then uh, I, I definitely would recommend people not underestimate the power of mental rehearsal. So actually imagining what uh, would happen if you encountered a dream sign and how you would become lucid and what you would do from there. That can be something that's extremely powerful. And it's a part of the mild or mnemonic induction of lucid dreaming technique. That's a very useful part that I think people tend to underemphasize. And what you're doing with this is you're preparing your mind to do something for when the moment finally comes. And so you're, you're much better able to actually do what you set out to do. Yeah, I, I think the, um, what I found always, and, and that's been my recommendation to people, um, at the very least with reality checks, is that if you're not coupling them with dream signs, I mean, it, it's, they, they, they're just not as useful. So for me, uh, and of course this ties into writing a dream journal, which I think is like the most basic, the most crucial component, because it's dream recall and it's dream awareness. Um, but, with dream, but writing a dream journal actually gives you uh, a catalog of things that appear in your dreams. And the ones, at least for me, this is my experience, the ones that are repeating aspects, repeating elements that are often in your dreams, you can use those um, in daily life to, to trigger uh, a reality check. When you do a reality check, every time you see a dream sign that appears often in your dreams, you are far more likely to again see that particular thing in your dream and you are practiced uh, doing a reality check in that point in time. That triggers doing a reality check as, as opposed to just triggering lucidity by, by memory. Of course, when you add all of those together, chances increase. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many fold, but, but for sure. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You should be practicing these things in the daytime. I think a lot of people go into lucid dreaming with the idea that they're just going to be able to do these things at night when that's not always the case. You need to be developing mindfulness and awareness and these sort of critical reflection skills during the day. And that would generalize into the nighttime. If you're not doing it in the day, then it won't happen at night. Yeah, and I think the uh, imagination or sort of envisioning becoming lucid um, is, is also tied well to prospective memory. Having the intention and the plan and trying to remember in the future to take an action, but then you also imagine what, would, what it would be like um, to take that action in that moment, reinforcing the whole, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And perspective memory, again, that's so important. And it's not that hard of a concept to relate to. I mean, if you need to go to the grocery store after this podcast and buy eggs and bread and make sure you grab milk, you know, you have to set your mind to be able to do that. You know, you set your mind as soon as I'm leaving the door and I get in my car, I'm going to drive to the grocery store and that's what it's going to look like. And so it's not that hard of a concept to, to relate to. Um, and, you know, another technique that Stephen LaBerge introduced me to, well, actually to augment 
some of the ones that he has already taught me I thought was really interesting. So the mild technique is interesting because you're supposed to wake yourself up in the middle of the night after your rent periods and recall them and then rehearse getting lucid. I've had trouble with that at times. And he instructed me to, instead of, you know, just setting your mind to wake up and remember your dream, uh, and usually the case is that I roll over and don't remember anything by the time I finally get up in the in the morning, is to take a piece of paper and pen, put it by your bed, and write down the time you went to sleep. And every time you wake up, just write down the time. So when you wake up, you write down the time. And what I noticed was just that concrete action of taking a moment to write down and think where I am allowed uh, those memories to come back much more in the middle of that and so that's been something really useful to actually write down the times that you wake up from these dreams and then use what you recall in those moments uh, for the mild technique so that the next time you go back to sleep you're more better prepared to to become lucid that's great that's mm -hmm. that's a good one um okay so what about um things once once you once you achieve lucidity and you've had some fun running around flying and doing all sorts of stuff what are some of the uh Again, doesn't have to. You're, you don't have to prescribe psychological uh, exercises here or something. But other than um, other than addressing nightmares, um, what are some of the things that people can can do that are that are health related, psychologically related to improve, to transform, or just to do in in, in lucid dreaming? Uh, I does the question make sense? I, I don't know. Yeah, okay. no, it, it does make sense. And we could probably talk about all the different uses for lucid dreaming as possible. And maybe uh, for us here, then it might be helpful to talk about it from my perspective as, a, as a, some psychology. Uh, and, you know, what I find that a lot of people benefit from is because of the safety of this state, they're better able to explore themselves. They have more access to things that are within them, but perhaps don't always come up in their waking life. So that could be emotions, that could be memories. And I always promote using that material to learn more about yourself, to increase how flexible you are psychologically in terms of your thinking, your emotions, the choices that are available to you and exploring what you can actually do with that. Uh, am I answering your question? Yeah, no, way? that's great. Let me, I can, I can ask something more specific perhaps. Um, no, but, but this is great. Uh, do, you, do you subscribe, for example, to the, to the theory that something like uh, talking to dream characters uh, is basically talking to yourself in some sense or the subconscious or some parts of your subconscious. Again, it probably depends on uh, people's um, psychological view in terms of like this theory or that theory, Jung or Freud or this, that or the other, uh, but, that, but that you can basically communicate in a more verbal and direct way with parts of your psyche uh, through dream characters. Than, than, than in any other format other than lucid dreaming? Uh, sure. You know, whether you're talking to a part of yourself or a, that knows a lot about you or actually has something valuable to say is a 
question, but right. often people do report that they do have those experiences. And you know, even going back to the work of Paul Tolai, that's what he recommends, having these sorts of dialogues with different aspects of yourself. And you know, if you feel threatened by then, then working on resolving that in some way or giving these dream characters a gift or asking them if they have a gift for you or if they have something to teach you that can be really enlightening as far as who you are and what you're looking for it's something that I think could have a lot of value yeah I think uh, very actively opening up to the chance to find something out or learn something about yourself in a lucid dream uh, again it, because so much is activated by intention and where you put your focus mm -hmm. then things tend to happen in, in, in dreams that sort of reply to that or or come as, as a sort of answer or or uh, reply again to, to those things. Um, I think uh, Kelly Bulkley, who's a dream researcher, uh, I was with him on the panel in, in Palo Alto, and I'm hoping to have him on the podcast soon. He tweeted about a study that was looking into lucid dreaming as preparation uh, for death. Mm -hmm. And I think you were talking about that at the very beginning, where that, that was part of your interest about death and dying. Uh, I think somewhere, the first place I saw it is one of the books of like the Dalai Lama, um, Waking, Dreaming, Dying, maybe something similar it's, to... I think it's uh, Sleeping, it here, Dreaming, something. and Dying. Sleeping, Dreaming, <laughs> and Dying, yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I found that interesting. Uh, it's one of those things that people don't, don't talk about, but uh, easing anxiety of end-of-life end of anxiety and, and things like that, that people are looking into... All sorts of avenues in, in order to help but because it's sort of you know people are dying and it's just the the end of life we we, we tend to sort of not think about that sure. yeah mm -hmm. um but but it's the people who work with people who are in the process of dying that realize how crucial something like that is and uh, the possibility of of again like you say it's it's a safe environment uh, and that feeling of safety in a lucid dream allows for so much and even for something like that or dealing with all, mm -hmm. all sorts of issues. Yeah, I, I, I agree, definitely. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. Uh, so last thing I remember that I wanted to, uh, to ask you about, uh, we were talking a little bit about um, the, the research and, and working with dream reports, uh, and we were talking about the, um, b before we started recording, about the uh, Voss Lucid Scale and how they're, taking dream reports and basically I think trying to quantify aspects of dream experience in order to measure sort of the type of dream it is, uh, the level of lucidity, um, level of insight as to that this is a dream, level of control, disassociation, and so on. Um, I know you haven't, you haven't read the, the study recently, but I was wondering what's your take on that and are there in your experience in talking to people uh, uh, who report about dreams, whether in, in your practice or in, in the research, uh, if there are, are like little aspects that indicate either progress along towards lucid dreaming or, or indication of lucidity. Did I cut off over there? Can you just repeat, repeat the last sentence you said? That was it. So I said, um, if, uh, if, you ha if you notice either uh, from from talking to people and getting dream reports, either in your practice or in the research, if there are little indicators of either progress along the path towards a, 
achieving lucidity because I do think it's a sort of spectrum you you slowly increase on, uh, or are there indications of of um, I don't know something about people becoming lucid or what may have caused them to be lucid or aspects of the dream that do indicate uh, that there's a different maybe a little more higher uh, awareness in a dream. Okay. Well, you're asking me about the Voss study, like I said, when we began, I haven't read that one in years, but you're also kind of pushing me to think about the foundations of measurement, and we really don't have adequate means of measuring lucidity and lucid dreaming as of yet. And uh, as far as I can recall from the lucid scale, uh, I, they said it was validated, but I don't know what it was validated on exactly. It definitely was not validated against poly or um, the paradigm of Stephen LaBerge where you communicate to researchers through electroocular activity. And so, you know, are they really measuring lucid dreams? I can't, I can't really say that. And even in terms of uh, face validity and looking at some of the items on that uh, questionnaire, many of them I had a hard time, I recall, seeing how they exactly related with dreaming. Some of them possibly would, you know, the insight that you are dreaming while you're in a dream, but there were some that seemed kind of random, and I'm not sure if you're thinking of any in particular. And as far as it being called a, a state of dissociation, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, and I wonder how helpful of a term it is to call lucid dreaming a state of dissociation, because when you look at non-lucid dreams, for example, non-lucid dreams are dissociated from the waking state. So what value is it to call lucid dreams a state of dissociation when relative to non-lucid dreams, they're actually less dissociated than uh, non-lucid dreams? But where I do think that there could be some value and that is where lucidity can bring about sort of an observer perspective, which I think might kind of relate to this concept of dissociation that a lot of people talk about. And sure, you know, you do need to take a step back to be mindful and self-aware and engage in metacognitive faculties. So I could see where, where that comes into play. But as far as these scales, you know, they haven't been validated. We don't really have the best ways of measuring lucid dreams or lucidity. And a lot of researchers tend to have different definitions of it. And that really complicates uh, the state of the literature these days. Right. I mean, for one, I would ask dissociation from what, you know, because it's mm -hmm. saying dissociation is very general unless you have, it depends on the specific definition or uh, the way you, you sort of measure or look at it, then that gives you something different. Um, mm -hmm. And, 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 and so sometimes it, it, it might be a matter of semantics, but I think it's important to try to figure out the, or map out the aspects of, of what occurs in a lucid dream. And I think it's just very difficult to quantify subjective experience. Um, people, people still do it and people still do psychological research, but yeah. Sure. You were mm -hmm. saying? And that's not to say that that research isn't without value. And I do know that uh, Dr. LaBerge has done some research on the differences in dream content between lucid and non-lucid dreams. And there are facets that do uh, regularly seem to be uh, significantly linked with lucidity. And some of those can include having uh, more choice available to mm. you, the ability to, or the experience of thinking more about your thoughts, your privacy 
private experiences, uh, more clarity, more of a perception of control. So there definitely is some good research out there. It's just that it's not in the best state. And of course, there's room for improvement and it could continue to be developed. Right. I feel like we're scratching the surface with, with the science, but it, it just keeps increasing, which is fantastic. And we'll, we'll develop better you know, ways to even look at it, observe it, measure it, and so on. This, I mean, this has been fantastic. Before, before I say goodbye, is there anything you want, anything else you want to say, or if people want to look you up? I know you have your practice in San Diego, and oh, yes, sure. Uh, my my website for my practice is luciditypsych.com, and um, you can also follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at lucidreamtips. And uh, I guess one last thing I would like to say as far as helping people uh, better be able to have lucid yes, dreams, is the one thing that I think would be great to leave everyone with is the idea of sharing your dreams more and sharing your interests in lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming tends to come off as sort of a solitary and isolated activity, but it doesn't have to be that way. And from what I've seen and experienced, whether it's with retreats or with patients, et cetera, the more people talk about it, the more they inspire each other, the more they're able to learn, the more they're able to motivate themselves to sustain a practice. So uh, people like you are doing very good things. And uh, I do just want to end with that and say thank you for having me on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for being here. I'm, I'm really glad we connected. I'm really glad you ended on that because I can't help but reflect how in some cultures, dreams are uh, almost at the center of just the community and, and talking about it yeah. and sharing. Uh, and somehow in the West, uh, somewhere over time, it, it started becoming this thing we barely even remember, let alone talk about. So I'm glad you're, you're also helping in sort of bringing it, bringing it back to the fore. Uh, so thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you once again you. for coming, <laughs> and uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, right. Jay. Take Bye. care. Bye. So I uh, hope you've enjoyed this interview. I definitely did, and I hope to have Kristen back again in the future to talk. Uh, we might meet sometime soon in the future in person. Maybe we can record another one when we get together that'll be really cool. Stay tuned for in the next few weeks for several more, uh, at least one more interview that uh, I've recorded. And I have a few more scheduled for uh, beginning of January and middle of January. And that should be fun too. All right. Uh, thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, feedback, I am at the lucid sage on Twitter. And you can reach me via email contact at lucidsage.com. Again, thank you for listening. Sweet and lucid dreams.